0: Listen to challenging topics and insightful conversations. We don't just report the news, we provide the real story behind the headlines by talking to global decision makers and influential figures. This is
1: The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, understanding China. We speak to the man who knows better than most how to best do business with the world's most populous nation, Tim Clissold. For many businesses looking to expand overseas, China is a market too large to resist. But many Western companies need something of a helping hand to succeed in the world's biggest single market. And when they do, many will turn to Tim Clissel, the man who co-founded one of the first private equity groups ever launched in China and wrote the bestseller Mr China, detailing that group's ups and downs. Tim joins me now here in the studio. Um, great to see you here. Thank you. In person. Thank now you. have you've been in love with China for, for decades now um, what first drew, drew you to it?
0: Well so I've been in love with it but it's quite frustrating love <laughs> um, so I was actually sent to Hong Kong in the 1980s and I don't know why but I just immediately was struck by the difference in the language and I can't explain why but I just every time I see a character I want to know what it meant and I was just really intrigued And that kind of led me to want to explore China. So I think I was only in Hong Kong for about three weeks before I made my first trip to uh, Guangzhou. And um, you know, that first trip to China basically changed my life because it felt like I was going back fifty years. I mean, there's basically hardly any internal combustion engines, hardly any lights on the street. It was just so different and so strange, and a planned economy. I just got really intrigued by it.
1: And back in those days, how do you think the West? viewed the country because it sounds like you were quite surprised with what you found
0: um, I don't think they did view it at all I don't think that people I don't think people generally had any impression of China other than the kind of stereotypes of you know sloping roofs and inscrutable people which of course they're not at all Um, everyone wearing uniform clothing red flags that was about as far as it went so it hadn't really impinged on the Western consciousness at that time so everybody all the people who came to see me in China would arrive with their just completely blank sheets of paper having no idea what to expect
1: and things have changed a lot but you know back then you made a a huge life-changing decision and you decided to up sticks go out there Live uh, and study.
0: So it's life-changing in retrospect. So when I actually did it, I was just following my nose and my interests. So you know, I was very interested in China. I wanted to understand language. Why not study it? And then things kind of just took off from then. So it wasn't. It's not all pre-planned. Very few people's lives are.
1: So there wasn't a light bulb moment when you thought, you know, what China's the future?
0: Yes. Well, there was, because what then happened was um, I. It took about three months out of work and I travelled through Xinjiang in... I went to Pakistan over the Karakaram mountains through Xinjiang and then right the way through central China to uh, Chongqing and then along the Yangtze on a boat up through, you yeah, know, from Shanghai, Beijing, through outer Mongolia and then right the way back through Russia.
1: And to be clear, um, this wasn't for work? This was, was travelling and exploring? Work. That, that, yes, it, it was exploring, incredible.
0: yeah. And um, the thing that really struck me was the contrast between China and Russia and when I got back to the UK all the newspapers were full of perestroika and glasnost because was the great Gorbachev years and I just felt that was the wrong way around and there's just so much more energy and vibrance in China so that was that was actually the light bulb moment was coming back here and seeing that kind of most of my colleagues and friends lives hasn't changed and mine had just changed so much and then this contrast between Russia and China I just felt the general opinion in the West had got that one wrong and when that when the market gets something wrong that's a big opportunity
1: and yet still investors policymakers get it wrong when it comes to China why do you think that is
0: well because they are extremely time constrained and China's difficult and it's complicated so it's much easier if you just go back to things that are familiar like a stereotype so the biggest mistake people make is conflating Soviet Communism with Chinese Communism. It's a totally different animal. And um, the best, I think the best way of thinking about the uh, way that China is governed is it's an extension of the imperial system. So the uh, um, bureaucrats now are a bit like the scholar officials um, in the imperial times. And they, ha- they have the same ethics. It's very, under- very important to understand the ethic behind what Chinese officialdom is trying to do. Um, and I just think it's too difficult. So people don't really take the time to understand that China does play by its own rules. And then it's also extremely difficult to really believe that an entire society does play by different rules unless you've been there and made mistakes and found out that it's really true. It's very difficult to learn it just from, you know, vicariously, just from people telling you about it. You have to feel it, you have to be there to really understand that it is different.
1: And you have felt it and you, you have been there. In fact, you wanted to found a private equity group in China. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: So, that was um, in the early 90s. And um, I met someone who'd been on Wall Street for a long time. And he wanted to, he'd identified China as, a, as kind of the next wave in the movement of capital. And I was very much his junior, he was about 12 years older than me. Uh, But we teamed up and I was meant to be the guy who'd kind of get all the stuff done in China And he'd go out and raise the money and he did that in about six weeks I think he went back to America and came back with 158 million US dollars and basically just said get on with it So uh, that was that was as as I'm sure you can imagine quite a challenge
1: didn't quite go to plan did it didn't
0: quite go to plan And that was uh, going back to your early question that was because we would assumed that businesses work in the same way in China, as they do in the West, so you know contracts enforceable, which is true, but it's not so simple, um, and that um, yeah incentives work in the same way, and they don't. So, so there are all sorts of differences that we learned, um, and took quite a lot of knocks and bruises, you know, during that process.
1: And that was despite you having, eat, slept, and breathed. China, yes. culture, and, and, the, and the business way of life.
0: Well, I hadn't, done, I hadn't really done a lot of business in China by that stage. Uh, and, and frankly, there were very few Westerners who, at that stage, really did understand the differences. Um, because most of the investments that had been made by foreign investors are large corporations. So they're just a small offshoot of a much larger thing that's outside. We'd basically raised this money, and we eventually came up with something like 420 million. All of that was invested in China. We had no foreign head office. We had no foreign activities. We were a Chinese company, so that was very, very different in those days.
1: So talk us through the early days, because you had that enormous investment, and then you watched it slowly trickle away.
0: So basically what happened is we invested in, I think, something like 20 factories, um, and we invested that in something like 18 months. And on paper, we had controlling positions, so we always took more than 50% of the equity. We always had the right to send in management. But there was a slow realisation that, although on paper, we had the controlling interest, we weren't actually in control. So there there were all sorts of things that happened, like, you know, um, unauthorised investments, where a factory manager would basically invest a vast amount of money in a new factory for a new product without really ever consulting. And Um, that was okay. no it wasn't okay of course it wasn't okay but once it's happened then you've got the dilemma of what you do uh, and some of these factories were in quite sort of remote places so it was tough then to get replacement managers to go um, so it was very difficult and um, the other thing which is really ca- came home is that we were subject to fraud um, which is about five million US dollars There was a letter of credit for fraud in the south of China and through that I learned that um, A corporate action in China can be validated entirely by the fixing of a chop so there are these little round red seals um, and if that chop is affixed then that is complete proof and a validity of corporate action so there's nothing you can do to remove that so that so what that means is the physical custody of the chop is absolutely critical so it's very simple in China if you don't control the chop you can't control a business and that's still going on now so companies like ARM have just had a major problem with their subsidiary in China and that's because the Chinese counterparty had physical control of the chop but there's very very little you can do about it so it's still going on 20 years later people still haven't learned that really basic rule
1: you and uh, your colleagues lost a lot of money the business lost a lot of money how how, then did you turn things around
0: so we basically um, we we, um, we used to value the businesses, and the valuation of the business was way down from what we paid for it. So, although you know, on paper it was a paper loss, but and, and there was cash that had out, outflowed, but it was retrievable. We still had you know va- uh, valid businesses. The problem was we weren't in control. We had all these di- different factories going their different ways, and what we needed to do was pull it all together. And the way that we did that was to try to create a common sort of culture that both the foreigners and the Chinese could buy into. And that took quite a long time to do, but it was quite successful. It was surprisingly successful. You just have to be very clear about what you're trying to achieve, how everyone can benefit, and what kind of values you're trying to inscribe in the business. So once you've accepted that framework, if people don't subscribe to that value, then basically you have to get rid of them. Um, so there was a process of just setting up the values and the objectives we wanted to do, and then if people really couldn't sign on to that, then you had to change them, and that was very arduous, and very tough, and that involved a lot of fights.
1: So it wasn't just a question of being nimble um, and being flexible. You, you have to roll um, your sleeves up and get some, quite stuck
0: in. In some ways, it was the opposite. Yeah. So you have to listen very, very carefully to the people that you're working with and managing to find something that is both. Acceptable to a Western side, down to a Chinese side, and once you've done that, then everybody binds on. And it's an, if you take your time and you really understand, it's not that difficult. It's not that we're all. We're it's all, not that we're difficult, but in
1: business, time is money. But so look, yes, let's... that's
0: right. That's right. So, 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 so the the the, the um, overall performance of the business. The 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 companies are still the largest independent. Uh, producer of auto components in China. So it's still, you know, it it has survived and it's been bought and sold several times. The problem with the early part is you've exactly right. There's kind of a relentless cutting into your returns just by the effluxion of time. And it did take about three or four years to really fully understand what the depth of the problems were and then figure out how to turn it turn it around. So obviously in those earlier years the returns weren't there.
1: So then you became a bit of a, a turnaround guy and, and became involved in resolution yes. uh, dis- disputes. Um, talk, talk to us a little bit about that, and, uh, the relationship between Chinese and foreign companies. Um, give us an example of, of, of what that looks so, like. So
0: what, what I wanted to do is try and take the um, experience that I'd had of resolving a set of disputes, because there are American investors in this private equity company, mainly American investors and Chinese business people, and there were just different objectives, um, so I was stuck in the middle. And by kind of rejecting a lot of the very fixed Western views, I did manage to solve it ultimately. And I wanted to use that um, pro- that problem solving skill in different contexts. So um, there are a huge number of disputes between foreign investors and Chinese, and they're generally because there there are misunderstandings and then the foreigners feel that they're being taken advantage of inside China and that can be because they don't under, understand the system or it can be because they are being taken advantage of but it then generally becomes tremendously emotional so every time I go to find do a dispute resolution I'm always appointed by the foreign side and I go and speak to the Chinese party And basically the first meeting the Chinese guy will just shout for three hours okay so then you go back the next day and it'll shout for two hours and then eventually you'll sort of sort it out and uh, it's the same on the American side so basically the Americans generally the Americans feel that guy's stolen our money because he has not adhered to the contract that's one side and then the other side is those guys have insulted our national dignity by treating us in that way okay so then you just gradually kind of work and you get both sides to say well do you want to you want to sort this out and they generally sort of grumble a lot and say yes and then the next part is the most difficult because you have to get both sides to accept emotionally that they were part of the problem that's the most difficult part of it if you can do that then the rest of it all just comes down to numbers and it's easy <laughs> <laughs>
1: Now, something else a lot of people are shouting about in the yes. business world and beyond yeah. um, is climate change is, is going green. But back in 2008, you um, established a new business to is, yeah. originate carbon offsets. It yeah. seems a little bit you know, ahead of its time um, in China a, yeah. as well, which was you know, accused of being one of the, the biggest polluters and contributors yeah. to, to CO2 emissions. Yeah. So how's that going?
0: So, um, well, that, that, that there are a lot of questions in that single question. So um, my interest in um, uh, carbon offsets actually derived from a dispute that I resolved. So I didn't really understand the carbon offset business. And basically what I like in China is complexity. So anything that's like kind of really difficult and other people don't want to go anywhere near.
1: You like the challenge. I like that, yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So so yeah, so we we set up um, a um, business to uh, originate carbon offsets, and I did feel it was a good thing, I did a lot of reading about the physical science basis of climate change because i was taking a lot of money again from US investors, I wanted to know it was on solid ground um, and ultimately unfortunately that scheme which is um, put up by the UN didn't work because the EU market for carbon offsets didn't work because the EU couldn't get its policy together um, but I, I think you know, one point that I would like to make is that you know, um, China is a large polluter, but they are making the most incredible efforts to clear the environment up. So, there's, um, last time I looked, there are 250 gigawatts of wind power and 250 gigawatts of solar power in China. Just to put that in context, the whole of the UK national grid is 70. So, you've got more than three times the UK national grid in each of those renewables, and hydro is the same. And they're also doing that in the environment, so just a quick anecdote, there's a town in Shandong that I have been going to regularly recently, and when I first went there, it was terribly polluted because it is a um, base for the chemicals industry, and the local mayor tried to shut down one of the factories. Um, and he tried to shut it down he couldn't shut it down because the factory lobbied the provincial government and then he lobbied the central government, it was all completely mess so he tried to shut it down and he couldn't so he's fired so then there was another guy helicoptered in from a, a, another local um, town called Zaodrang, and he tried to cut the, uh, t- t- uh, turn the chemical factory off and stop the pollution and it failed again so he sent in the military police to blow up the power supply to that Factory whilst it was working, so that all the vitreous substrates would, free, would freeze solid inside the reactors, so they'd never be able to start it up again. That's the level of the struggle that's going on. Because there are 6,000 people, you know, without work. It's not a simple issue to just shut down all these uh, old uh, smoke creating industries. There is an enormous struggle underway in China, and they are succeeding. They are succeeding.
1: More now with my guest, China expert, Tim Klissel. Tim, let's talk about the the current relationship between China and the West. Where where do you think that relationship's headed?
0: Um, I'd like to say I was optimistic it will be sorted out, but it's very difficult to see how it will be. Um, And so I'm not terribly optimistic. Um, I mean, I I think that um, hot conflict will probably be managed. But i think we're going to see a lot more um, decoupling and that can't possibly be for the the benefit of, of the world um so so i'm not really terribly optimistic about it i'm afraid
1: well we can't talk about china and not talk about covid and particularly all of the yeah. supply chain um, yeah. issues that that, that 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 has thrown up and caused um, do you do you think we can expect further lockdowns in china and if so what the implications are going to be uh, when it comes to global supply chains
0: I mean I think that um, because you can't um, avoid the risk of that happening there is going to be a continuing decoupling uh, I mean I think that any prudent businessman will do two things so the first one is that they will try and supple- uh, you know protect their supply chains but they'll also they can't ignore the Chinese market so um, you know the idea that there will be a, you know a, a full decoupling think, is unrealistic um, and the reason why I think that is because um, b- basically, whether it's true or not, most people chi- in China believe that the United States wants to hold back China's development. Okay, so let's not get into the reasons why that's happening. But that's what they believe. And you can't do that to any per- you can't do that to any nation. You can't say you don't have the right to develop in the way that you wish. Um, and it's not practical to expect that to happen. Um, So I think that um, what will happen is that gradually over a period of time, there will be more and more tension inside the West about a uniform China strategy because, A, I don't think it will work, and, B, it's not in anybody's interests to have a complete decoupling. What we need to do is have more um, talk, Uh, recognise the areas where we've got different interests from China, but there are all sorts of areas where we've got very common interests as well. And... um, you know, I think we just need to try and lower the temperature of the language. And the West has a tremendous catch-up. You know, when Jia Bao came to see David Cameron, he brought with him a copy of Adam Smith's Not the Wealth of Nations, the most famous one, with the moving hand. He bought the theory of moral sentiment, and he quoted from it at length, right? And the theory of moral sentiment is about the limits that should be placed on the market. You know, Xi Jinping made a speech in France in 2014 saying, as a young man, I studied Montesquieu, uh, Voltaire and Rousseau, and through that I understood that progress in the mind propels progress in society. Yeah, so um, there aren't really any Western leaders that could possibly say, you know, as a young man I read Confucius and Mengzi and Shunzi. I mean, that just doesn't exist. So... There is objectively a tremendous catch-up that the West has, and we haven't even started that. And I think it's really imperative that we have to try to understand that other societies can, you know, can live by their own historical experience, and their own traditions and so on, quite successfully and quite happily. They don't just have to adopt a, a Western uh, model. And I think that that's one of the biggest blocks that we have in trying to deal with China.
1: And that's also why you're quite invested, aren't you, in education and, and changing the, the, the system in terms of that. You want to get British schoolchildren learning the history of China, not just the, the language, in the way that they know about ancient Greeks and the ancient Egyptians. That's right,
0: that's right. So um, at, at the moment, the, uh, in, in my view, the um, education system in the UK, which, you know, there are lots of marvellous things about it, has adapted amazingly for, say biology so that now the biology a level includes molecular genetics that didn't exist when I did a level uh, geography includes um, climate change It includes dispute resolution with you know sort of hunger and all these issues but the biggest change in my lifetime is globalization and the internationalization of the way that we all think and work and the largest player in that is China and China is completely, effectively completely absent from the a level curriculum so there there are some people who study Mandarin at a level But they're basically a tiny, tiny minority. And 90% of them are PRC nationals. So, for a non native speaking Brit who wants to try and understand China, there's effectively not really anything at this critical phase um, at A levels. And what I would like to do is introduce um, a new qualification um, that is about the Chinese civilization, which is taught in English. Um, by you know English people for English people and I think that that is something that can unite both the hawks and the doves on China because whatever you view about China is it's not going to go away and we have to deal with it so even if you think it's kind of an adversary that has to be pushed away or somebody that we need to cooperate with best we need to understand it better so that's my pitch
1: and to understand it better we need to look at old Chinese texts learn about Chinese history you've immersed yourself in poetry.
0: Yeah, I have. So, so part of the reason why I've tried to um, write about Chinese poetry and use that as a genre to try and bridge the gap um, is because of the efforts in to try and change the education system are very very long term um, and time just doesn't wait. So basically what I've done is I've um, assembled a collection of uh, poems which were written in the 7th, 8th, 9th century by Chinese um, poets which are very very well known in China but they speak to all the problems that we have in the West at the moment like homelessness uh, inequality tax evasion deforestation so all of that was going on then so there are, there's there's um, one poem which I found I was thrilled with by uh, Liu Zhongyuan and that is about the problems that come from excessive logging yeah and that was written in about 930 so, so all. It's, I think it's very heartening that a lot of these problems are the same as they were. So, Du Fu, China's greatest poet, the most famous poem Du Fu wrote. You can immediately see him as a troubled, lonely man standing on the walls of a shattered city, looking out over a ravaged landscape, and he's just desperate for news from home because he's a refugee. Yeah, and that, how topical can that be? In Europe at the moment.
1: So, writing about poetry, even though it's not your standard business book actually just tie all your things together
0: I just hope it can make people realize that we've got a lot more in common than we have set apart and they can sort of think well yeah that is pretty amazing that the Chinese were thinking about these problems so long ago
1: Tim Clissol it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and hearing your stories thank Thank you. you thank you you can watch every episode of the agenda in full on cgtn europe's youtube channel and for exclusive extra content from me my guests and the rest of the team don't forget to check out at the agenda show on tiktok but for now from me juliet Mann, and from all of the agenda team here in london goodbye